All right, you can go ahead and take a copy of your confession this morning. We're going to begin again looking at our confession of faith. And we are in chapter number 12 of the confession. And we'll be dealing this morning with the subject of adoption. Chapter 12 of the confession, dealing with the subject of adoption. Now, my intention would be today to... Can someone get the door, please? Um, My intention today uh, will be to kind of give us an introduction to this particular paragraph. So today we'll take on more of an outline form uh, with some of the highlighted thoughts that are in this particular paragraph. You'll notice that chapter 12 only has one paragraph and uh, dealing with this subject of adoption. Now remember, we took a break from our study of the confession as we worked our way through the Old Testament book of Obadiah. So we're in the middle of the section of the confession, chapters 10 through 18, that deals specifically with the doctrine of salvation. Now the first part of this section, verses 10 through 18, verses uh, chapter 10 through 13, deals with the aspects of salvation uh, in which God alone acts. So we're dealing specifically here with what God completely does uh, on his own. The second section, chapters 14 through 18, uh, deal specifically with the aspects of salvation in which some way, shape, or form uh, we are involved. Now, not in the actual saving of ourselves, but we'll get to that. We know that all of our salvation is by grace. Uh, We know that all of our salvation is by uh, the purposes and the merits and the righteousness of Christ. Uh, As we get into the next chapter in chapter 13, dealing with sanctification, uh, that's where we begin to see a transition take place. So here we have in this paragraph dealing with the subject of adoption. Notice with me there as we read together. All those that are justified, God vouchified in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Have his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. So what we have before us here is this beautiful picture of adoption. Now, I don't know how you're treating this study when we get into these paragraphs. If you're a copy of the confession, if you mark in that, certainly that's entirely up to you. But I have marked some words that I want you to pay close attention to. And if you want to mark them, we're going to kind of highlight these particular words today as we give kind of an outline of this paragraph. The first word, of course, is the word justified. The second word is that strange word that we're not used to reading, which is vouchified. We'll talk about that. Uh, The word sake, uh, the words or phrase are taken, liberties and privileges, name, spirit, access, cry Abba, Father, pitied, protected, provided for, 
never cast off, sealed, inherit promises and heirs of everlasting salvation. Now, each one of those phrases and words carries with it its own importance and its own value as to how we look at this particular topic of adoption. I want to share with you a quote that J.I. Packer made regarding the doctrine of adoption. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator... In the same way, you sum it up the whole New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. So when we consider this idea of adoption, we are considering fatherhood. We're also considering not only fatherhood, but we're considering sonship. We're considering a relationship that is based upon something that was not up to you and I. And it was on the basis, our adoption is on the basis of our justification. Uh, It is very important that we get the order here. Our adoption is not first. Our justification is first. Adoption follows our justification. So it is important that the confession in that paragraph immediately identifies that in order to even consider and to understand and to comprehend the doctrine of adoption, you must in fact be justified. It is impossible for the entire world to call God their father. Now in the truest sense, God is the, fa- is the creator of all creation, right? He is creator all he's creator God, but not every human being on this planet can call God their father. It is highly inappropriate for an unbeliever to in some even some sense of need at that moment to call upon God as his or her father that he does not have the rights to call that his father. Justification is precedes that adoption. So in order for us to even consider ourselves to be children of God, we in fact must be justified. That's why I had you mark that first word, justified. Now today we're really going to give you just a 30,000 foot view of this. Next week we're going to get more into the exposition of each phrase. But I do want to draw your attention, kind of take for our subject, that why does adoption take place? And it's found in the very first line. It says, for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. The only reason that we are adopted into the family of God is for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. That's why we're adopted. We're not adopted into the family of God because we bring some sort of value. We are adopted for the sake of Christ alone. 
And because of that adoption, or because of his sake, our adoption becomes something that should be to us most precious. That's why I began by sharing that quote by Packer, by the true understanding of Christianity must have a comprehension of the adoption of God. This adoption, uh, although it's only one paragraph in our confession, is absolutely filled with important doctrines and principles that we need to understand as to why this is the case. So this is why we must talk about justification as we talk about adoption, because without justification, there is no adoption. Uh, It has been said, and I do not have the author of this quote, but he said, adoption is a follower of justification. What adoption declares clearly is that there is a union with Christ. So in order to be a partaker of this adoption, there must be a union with Christ. This is not something that we can just disagree on. Without union with Christ, you cannot call God your heavenly father. You cannot, you cannot boldly call on him in a time of need if he is not your father. Now that may seem cruel, that may seem harsh. But remember, there is a prescribed reason, and that is our justification. So really today, as we look at this very high view of this, I want to deal with really three headings. First of all, the facts of adoption. Again, why is there adoption? The blessings of adoption is the second heading. And the third heading is the results of adoption. And then when we get to the end, I'm going to throw a question to you guys that I want you to be able to kind of give me some feedback on as to what you think uh, the answer to that question will be. So let's first of all deal with this first heading of the facts. We've already established this fact that adoption is because of justification. Okay, that's the simplest way to put that. Adoption is because of justification. That interesting word, vouchafed, is simply the word or the term that means to grant by favor. Okay, it's a word that very rarely do you see in our English, modern English language today, but it was a common, normal word, uh, even in the days when this confession was penned. Think about it from this perspective. From a technical standpoint, think about a voucher. That's the idea. It's a, it's a voucher. It's something that is granted by the favor or on the merit of something else. Okay, so this is not something, this adoption is not something you can earn. This is not something that you earned by the way you look, by the way you talk, by the value you bring. This adoption is strictly based on the fact of justification. No justification, no adoption. That phrase, for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, I had you underline the word sake. The fact of adoption is not only based upon justification, but adoption is Christ-centered. Okay, it's Christ-centered. What that means is our adoption is all for the sake of God's only son. Jesus Christ is the very center of adoption. As the center of adoption, he is the eternal son of God. And if we have been adopted into the family of God, we are in fact in him. Now, there's two verses that are mentioned uh, as footnotes in our confession that point us to the Christ-centeredness of this adoption. It's Ephesians 1, 5 and Galatians 4, 1 through 7. So let's turn, first of all, to Ephesians 1 and look at verse number 5. 
This is uh, going to be a, a familiar passage as we've worked our way through the book of Ephesians during our Sunday morning worship. And you'll remember that Paul was writing here to the church at Ephesus about their redemption by Christ. And we're skipping down to this verse. He says, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 6, just for context's sake, says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Notice the attachment to, to the praise of the glory of His grace. God is essentially and is entirely glorious. So when God glorifies His grace, what He is doing is glorifying His entire character. So when we sing about grace, we are singing about the entire character of God, not just one aspect of God. God's grace demonstrates His entire character. You take away grace, you take away God. So grace becomes the very foundation or the platform in which God's deity is fully exhibited and fully on display. So this adoption, you'll notice, Paul wrote, the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. So we see it's centered on Christ. If you would go over to Galatians chapter 4. And let's look at verses 1 through 7. This is another one of the footnoted uh, verses in the first line of the confession. Paul, now writing here to the Galatians, reminds believers, this is what's important, he's reminding believers that they are heirs of God's grace. Now, based on what we just said a moment ago, grace is the entire demonstration of the character of God. We, in fact, are heirs. Of God's grace. Verse 1 of Galatians 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, now notice this, because ye are sons, God hath sent forth his, the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So this doctrine of adoption is not a light doctrine. But you see, it's based upon God's grace. It is because of justification and it is Christ-centered. What does it mean there in that phrase, to be partakers back in the confession of the grace of adoption by which they are taken into the number? To be taken into the number means to be taken and considered as part of the whole. And what does that bring? To enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. We are taken into the number, the entire whole, the God of grace, the entirety of his Godhead, through and by Christ, in order to receive and enjoy. Folks, we miss the enjoyment of being one of God's children. 
You ought to enjoy your Christianity. You ought to enjoy that you've been adopted into the family of God. We ought to be able to delight in the fact that God set his love upon us. And that we're not so stoic and dry and dead that we just simply, yes, we know this grand doctrine, but it doesn't actually affect us on a day-to-day basis. If you know that you've been adopted as one of God's children, that that is the most glorious truth you are going to hear. Even if your earthly family and your earthly structure, you have a heavenly father who you are to enjoy the privileges and liberty. The world's screaming liberty today, but they're not talking about this liberty. They're not talking about liberty in Christ. What, what, the, what the rage of the world today is, is not about give me liberty in Christ. They want their own pride-filled liberty. This is liberty that's in Christ, and there is no grander liberty than that. Adoption is Christian liberty. It's interesting. Even Calvin himself said, you can't understand justification unless you understand Christian liberty. See, if you don't even understand, if you, if you can't understand justification, you can't understand justification unless you understand liberty. What does it mean to be free in Christ? What did Paul mean when he said he's free? I am free indeed. Even though he had used the illustration of being a bond servant and a slave. So this is the facts. Again, a very high level view of this. We've kind of bled over into the second heading, which is the blessings of adoption. You'll notice that immediately in the confession, paragraph one, after liberties and privileges, the children of God have his name. I had you underline or circle name. His name put upon them. To have the name means you have a relationship. You have a familial relationship, a family relationship. People here today, you have family relationships. And in, as I look around, your family relationships is primarily the people you're sitting in the rows with. But you also have a family relationship as a church, but you have a more important family relationship as one of the children in the family of God. We are, we are, the family is, of course, very, very important. The earthly family. I mean, we, we intentionally here at our church, we are intentionally family integrated for the purpose of making sure our families all understand together what these truths are. But even greater than our family integration and even greater than our family spirit that we have in this church is our family relationship that we have with God because we have his name. You know, I think I've mentioned this, it's maybe been a few years ago now, but one of the grandest things my father ever taught me was he said, remember your name. Now, he meant that in two ways. He meant that not only my family name, but he meant that name also my name in Christ. I tell young people all the time, just remember, you go out and you represent the name that you write, the name that you type, what you speak. You're representing that name, not just your first name, your last name, your family name. So when we go out into this world, we are going out with not only the facts of our adoption, but we're going out with the blessings and we have his name. And this is not just some hypothetical illustration. He said, you have his name put upon you. You can actually claim the name of Christ because you've been adopted into the family of God because you were justified. 
This is a glorious truth. Not only do we have his name put upon them, but we receive the spirit. That next word is spirit, the spirit of adoption. Notice that it was given to us. We receive the spirit. We don't earn it. We don't acquire it. We receive it. It was given to us as a gift. Along with that spirit of adoption, and we'll emphasize that more at a later study, have access, the word access, to the throne of grace. Now remember, what does grace mean? It's the entirety of the Godhead. It's the entire character of God. Can you imagine being this individual who has the name of Christ upon you, who now has access, full access, to come boldly to the throne of grace? That means you have access to come to the greatest of all places you can come and the greatest of all persons you can come, the God of all grace. And he doesn't say you come timidly. And there's all scripture, and you're seeing the footnotes in, and we'll talk about these over the weeks. They're, these are all scriptural truths. You are not told to come timidly to the throne of grace. In Hebrews, you're told to come boldly. Now, notice it doesn't say pridefully, but boldly. Why? Because I've been granted access. Why do I have access? Because I have his name upon me. The only reason I can get to the throne of God and his grace is because I have the name of Christ upon me. And I wouldn't have the name of Christ upon me had I not been justified. And had I not been justified, I wouldn't be adopted. And yet, these beautiful pictures that are given to us, access, Owens in his commentary on Hebrews says this, boldness of access is the principal blessing of the new covenant. We don't think about our access to God often enough. This is free access to God. Not only are we given access with boldness, notice the next phrase, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. There's an emphasis. We could have had you underline the word enabled too. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Where did that enabling come from? It came from God himself. See, you would have had no desire to come to the throne of grace without God through the Spirit drawing you to himself, to Christ, and opening your eyes, giving you the gift of repentance and belief. If we believe that salvation is of the Lord, that means it's from beginning to end. All of it is of God. That means that even our enabling, our enabling to be able to open our mouths and cry, Abba, Father, has been given to us by God's enabling. Do you see how nothing in our walk with God is dependent upon something that we're doing? And our salvation is not dependent upon some decision that we made? We don't make a decision to cry, Abba, Father. We are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. There's a tremendous difference between desiring and being enabled. Simply, Abba, Father, to cry, Abba, is the language of a child. Now, unfortunately, this has been abused over the years. This doesn't mean that you call the God of all grace, Daddy. That, that's not what this is. That is to lessen his holiness, his righteousness. I understand why the abuse takes place, but that is as doctrinally unsound as it possibly gets. He is not your daddy. And that doesn't make God more glorious that I can call him dad instead of holy father. 
or holy God. That doesn't make him more approachable. It doesn't make him more soft and tender. No, he is holy, righteous, justice, perfect God. And the fact that we can use the language of a child and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, is indeed a glorious truth. And then notice this series of three alliterated words. Pitied, protected, and provided for. Pitied, protected, provided. We'll use those first three first. These are the acts of a father towards his children. Now, again, it is always a difficult thing when I broach this subject. But in human fatherhood, this is not always the pattern. There are sad cases where a father is known as, he was just a, my father was a disciplinarian. But do you see what the language is being used here is? Pitied, protected, provided for. Just claiming that you are the father of a child does not make you a father in the sense of what a father should be. Just saying, I am the father of that child, doesn't mean that you're a fit father. Again, I'm being very careful with this. But I want you to understand that that is not the characteristics of God. Towards his children, he always demonstrates pity, he always demonstrates protection, and he always provides for you. There are earthly fathers that never reach that. Now, they reach the next word he uses, chastened, disciplines. And it's an important part of our adoption as children into the fatherhood of God. There's a movement that says we like the fact that God pities us. We like the fact that God protects us. And sadly, the prosperity gospel has made people believe we like the fact that God provides for us and gives us all of our wants and desires. But do you realize that the chastening is just as important as his pity, his protection, and his provision? Because his chastening is the greatest demonstration of his fatherhood towards you. Now again, we go to extremes in our human fatherhood. Put 50 fathers in a room and ask them what the most important thing is about raising a child. And you'll get some that'll say it's just being a hardline disciplinarian. You'll get others that'll say, I think the greatest thing I can do as a father is I think I need to provide. There are fathers that that's what they do. They say, my only responsibility to this family is to provide for you. But do you realize Almighty God is all of these things? He doesn't pick and choose on any given day. I think I'm going to pity that child today. I think I'll protect that child today. I think I'll provide for that child. I think I'll chasten that child today. No, he's always all four of those things, and it's always occurring. Believe it or not, you and I need daily chastening. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you had a pretty good day, spiritually speaking. You needed to be chastened and praise the Lord that you were because that's the greatest demonstration that God is in fact your father is because you're being chastened. Don't throw out a part of God in order to make God more palatable. Now this is important. This is, this is the very thing in which makes God God. Chastening of course, also implies yet never cast off. Think about that. To be never cast off means 
you are not going to suffer loss of your father. Now, there are religions that teach you can lose your salvation. If you can lose your salvation, that means you can lose your sonship. And yet you can't find that anywhere scripturally that once God is your father, that he ceases to be your father at any given time. Again, a human father may run out on his responsibilities. He may leave his family high and dry. He may say, I declare myself no longer your father. God not just won't, he can't. There's a big difference in won't and can't. If you treat God as a God will never leave me, God can't leave you if you're one of his. Because it would go against the very entire character and nature of who he is. He could no longer be God God of all grace if you can lose your sonship. To lose your sonship not only means you lose your adoption, but you also lose your justification. The, the, The implications of the religions that teach a loss of salvation, it is an unbelievably heretical doctrine. We treat this as, well, that's just a difference in our belief. That's not just difference in belief. That's heresy to teach that you can lose what God says you can't. Because God has to undo all of his promises. He has to undo all those Old Testament scriptures that were pointing to Christ. You have to undo the whole doctrine of adoption if you can lose your salvation. Yet that's not at all what was being taught. So notice not only are we not cast off, but notice he says, but are sealed. To be sealed to the day of redemption. Sealed to the day of redemption. That means we have been marked by the Spirit. We have the presence of the Spirit. That is the clearest indication that we are in fact one of His children. Is our sealing. And then notice He speaks not only of the sealing, but the inheritance. The inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. In a way, these promises are even greater than the promises that God made to Israel. Now again, I want you to chew on that for a while. The promises of the inheritance to become an heir and a son of God. Read Romans 9 again. The the most avoided chapter in all the Bible is Romans 9 because man does not know how to deal with it. Your inheritance is based upon something so much more than just your being Jewish. It's based upon the promises of God, and these inherited promises are even greater than that. So what are the results? The result of our adoption is that last phrase, we are the heirs of everlasting salvation. Really, if you look at this chapter, chapter 12 of adoption, the language of family is all over this paragraph. I mean, it's, it, is, it is in the very fabric of what's being said here. If you were to summarize this quickly and summarize as to what we're looking at when we talk about what it means to be a adopted, he says, this says all believers are adopted into the family of God. That's Ephesians 1.5. The adopted children of God become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. That's Romans 8, 16, and 17. Meaning, 
that we will receive equal inheritance with Jesus of everything except the adopted children of God will never be divine. Okay, now receiving all the privileges and the liberties doesn't mean that one day you become God or you even become as God. Do you know there are religions that believe upon their death they become a God? That's not what this inheritance is about. You're not going to become, pardon this expression, you're not going to become Jesus. Nor, that's for another day, nor are you going to become an angel. You're human. You're not, you don't, you're, you're not going to change that nature. You're not going to become an angel. You're not going to become a God. You are going to, but you are going to receive the blessings. Why? Because divinity belongs only to the Son of God. Christ. That's his, he is divine. You and I are not divine. So what's this mean for us going forward? What this means for us as we study this is next week we're going to look at a deeper exposition of this. And we're going to take those phrases and we're going to look at them in an even deeper manner to think about what is it that this adoption really does for me practically? How does this change the way that I live my life? How does this change the way that as I look back on my own life, how does it change the way that I consider my own standing in God? And what I'd like for you to do before I extend this question to you is I want us to think about as one of the greatest blessings you and I have is to understand that even that song we sang, Only a Sinner, is as, as guilty sinners, one of the greatest blessings imaginable is to be able to know that our sins have been pardoned and that our persons have been accepted by God as righteous. Don't ever, don't ever make the mistake of saying that your sins were overlooked. This is important. Sin was never ignored. God never ignores sin. There was a price that was paid. That price was paid by Christ. That pardon was given because of what Christ did. So this blessing of justification, which is the very central message, that's the message of the gospel. Justification itself seems too good to be true. But is, there, is, it, is it possible to imagine that adoption even takes our justification one step further? I've just put that question out to you. What would our justification be like without adoption? Now think about it. That's, that's a deep, very, very deep well. Justification without adoption. What would that mean for us? We understand the blessing of justification is that a judge declares the guilty one innocent based upon the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. But in the blessing of adoption, the judge goes one step farther and takes that rebellious, depraved sinner, no longer a slave to his sin, but now makes him a beloved son who has a loving father. That would be one thing to say, I'm justified, I'm saved from hell. But 
Think about what 1 John 3, 1 says about how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should even be called the children of God. That really is why justification and adoption go together. So I hope today that that'll be, that'll be a great help to us. All right, so here's, here's our question. I'm going to throw a question out to you. And of course, if, if you have questions, we can answer those. We've got a little bit of time now. So this is a very broad statement. I want you to think about for next week. I do want you to think about what our salvation would be like if there was no adoption. Okay, we'll deal with that next week. Now, there's numerous answers to this, and you can use your confession to kind of answer back, or you can use a passage of Scripture. If you know the, want to go to the Scripture passage and do this. This is a broad statement, broad question. Based upon this paragraph of chapter 12, what has God promised to do for his justified people? So you guys can just throw these out. What has God promised to do? You don't have to raise your hand. Just speak it out if you, if you know. What does God promise to do? I just want you all to feel what it's like to have the question at you today. <laughs> Plus, I think this is actually very good. Once we start this ball rolling, He's promised to redeem us. He's promised to sanctify us. He's promised to glorify us. Adoption. He's promised to adopt us. He's promised to make us partakers, right? Partakers of his grace. What about his recognition of us? What is it, what's the confession teach us about how, how is he going to recognize us as, as what? How does he recognize us as in it in particular. Go ahead, Janice. Children. As his children. Don't lose sight of that. That, that, is the, that. that tender thought that you see running through the pages of Scripture, when, it, when, when you see Jesus interacting with the little children, don't look so much at that as what age a child can come to saving faith. Look at it from the standpoint of being adopted as one of his. It really makes that picture even more beautiful. When he said, suffer not allowing the little children to come unto me. It's more than just the outward picture of Jesus sitting on a, on a, on a, a, a boulder somewhere saying, let the children come to me. He's, he's speaking in his divine authority. And he's talking about sonship. He's talking about children of God coming unto him. Okay, what else? dwelling place okay he's going to give us something going to give us the spirit right the spirit of adoption grants us access before the throne of grace with boldness another thought to consider is that when he encourages us to come boldly before the throne of grace that means he's also going to enjoy hearing his children cry abba father Folks, that's another piece to chew on. Imagine him delighting in you, knowing you, because of the righteousness of Christ. Go ahead. I heard somebody. We're set free from sin. 
We're set free from sin. Very good. What else? We're given the promise of being sealed, right? To be marked. Spiritual inheritance. Promises of everlasting salvation. We're promised to be persecuted. Yes. Absolutely. Chastening, provision, protection, pity. All towards his children. The confession is very specific in making it unknown that this is not just something everyone can claim. I cannot claim as an unbeliever, I cannot claim God's protection. And I can't claim God's pity. Not biblically, I can't. Now, I can convince myself in my mind, God is for me. This God I will not acknowledge except when I need him. But that doesn't make it so. It would be like somebody walking, crude illustration, walking the street and say, you know what? I've never met that person over there, but I'm going I'm to choose to call that person my father. You can call them your father doesn't make it so. Does that make sense? It sounds harsh, but that's biblical reality. This is, a, this is a special relationship. This is not something that is just, anybody can just claim it. All right, what else before we're finished here? Anybody else have another thought on something else that God's promised to do? Never to cast us off. Never to cast us off. Good. Never to leave us or forsake us. Never to leave us or forsake us. Raise us up on the last day. Raise us up on the last day. Does it get any better? This is why we're supposed to enjoy this, folks. These, these are not just, hey, if you do A, B, and C, I'm going to give you all this. He said, these are promises. Promises that I will not go back on. So I hope, I hope today you'll delight in your salvation. So next week, be thinking about that question about adoption apart from justification, which I think we're already seeing that it's not possible, but think about it. And then... Um, We'll have another kind of a question to throw out to you next week too. All right, so let's go ahead and pray. Then we'll have our time of fellowship. We have almost our entire 30 minutes this morning. So uh, there's coffee, water available if you'd like to help yourself to those things. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, how we thank you for this wonderful teaching this morning in your word. We thank you for the promises that uh, each have mentioned today. And may we meditate and think upon these great truths. Father, we know that in this life we will have struggles, we will have trials, we'll have afflictions, and yes, we will suffer persecution. But as the apostles considered it, they considered it to, to be that they were, they couldn't believe that they were counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. May that be our mindset as we consider our adoption as your children. We ask now that you'll bless this time of fellowship, and it's in Christ's name and for his sake I do pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.